Like I mentioned before, there's a group at Tri-Valley who uses the weekly sermon scripture text to write response prayers, reflecting the language of the psalm back to God. And I want to share with you a prayer that I wrote that's inspired by Psalm 109, which is an imprecatory psalm, a psalm that curses enemies. And I need to warn you before I read this prayer, it's going to sound pretty strange. It's going to be, might make you a little uncomfortable, but this is how it goes. Lord, I ask you to take care of the one who works against me. That mean and arrogant guy who talks behind my back, who doesn't like my ideas, who doesn't accept my invitations, who says he'll do things but then doesn't. Please make it so that his most trusted friend turns against him. Lord, can you have him arrested and found guilty of being a jerk? Lord, I'm even okay if he dies and someone else takes his job and his house. That would be great. And I know what that will mean for his wife and his kids, but I'm okay with it if you are. I want those kids to have hard lives without comfort and shelter from now on. I pray that all his stuff gets repoed. And if it's not too much trouble, could you have people break in and steal all his hard-earned money? Lord, people might feel sorry for this guy and his family, but I pray that no one does. I want his legacy to end here and be quickly forgotten. No more kids, no more descendants, no inheritance. Just delete his birth record, his social security number, all his emails, his posts, tweets, any other digital record of his existence. Now I know that there's forgiveness in Christ, but I'm okay if you retract that offer for this guy's family. No redemption, no forgiveness, no resurrection, no restoration. Lord, just clap your hands and make this guy disappear. Amen. That sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? It's like you can't say that kind of stuff to God. You shouldn't even think those kinds of thoughts, no matter how much the person might deserve it. It's just not nice. Well, in my defense, I was just following the sentiments of Psalm 109. I basically just put in my own words what King David wrote. Now, you may not have realized that curses that were this harsh and personal and mean were lurking in the pages of your Bible, but they are. Listen to the things that David prays against his enemies. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. The sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth. So what are we supposed to do with Psalms like these that read like a revenge fantasy? They're harsh, they're mean. They sound like the ancient version of cussing someone out. It's a pretty far cry from Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what are these kinds of expressions doing in the Bible? And what value did they serve back then? And what are we supposed to do with them now? That's what I want to spend a little time talking about this morning. Why are these in the Bible? Well, like I said earlier, these kinds of psalms are called imprecatory psalms or curse psalms. 
Now, written curses were actually a really common way of expressing your anger in the ancient world. People would inscribe their curses on a, a copper plate. You'd write down someone's name, how this person wronged you, and then what specific punishment you'd like to befall this scoundrel. And archaeologists have found a lot of these cursed tablets in ancient water wells. So it's kind of like the harsh version of, of throwing a coin into a wishing well or a fountain. So maybe the next time you're downtown or at a public fountain and you see a lot of coins, you might wonder how many of those are somebody wishing harm against you? Hopefully none of them, but you never know. And so we find a similar practice in the Psalms of disorientation. Those crying out when they're in trouble, when they're hurt, or when they're in need. And you often find these expressions of cursing within the lament psalms. Let's take a look at Psalm 69 together. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. Okay, so th this sounds like a lament, right? It's got all the elements of lament that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's addressed to God. It states the problem. In this case, I'm stuck in the mud. I'm surrounded. And then it tells God what he wants God to do. Specifically, I want you to save me, God. This is what he goes on to say. Answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Sounds pretty standard so far. Address to God, stating the problem, cry to God for help. All we need is an expression of trust to wrap it all up and we've got ourselves a nice standard lament. But not in this case. The psalmist goes on to put a very fine point on the type of intervention, the kind of justice he wants to see God perform on his enemies. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And so, may the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime and do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. So you can see this is very similar to the curses that we heard in Psalm 109 essentially saying, Lord, I want you to make them suffer. So whether or not the psalmist should be having these kinds of thoughts and feelings, he does. And if we're honest, we can relate to feeling so wronged and so angry that we just want to snap. We have thoughts and feelings like these. It's just surprising to hear them expressed out loud sometimes. When Ellie was in kindergarten, the kids were all playing on the playground one day after school and I was standing around with some of the other parents and we were chatting and one of the moms said something kind of surprising. She said, I think that anyone who ever hurts a child should be cut with rusty knives and thrown overboard to the sharks. I thought, yikes, that's a really specific thing to say. You've, you've obviously put some thought into this punishment. It wasn't your typical kind of after school chit chat. 
that you have with parents. But if I'm honest, I kind of agree with her. I kind of like that idea because I don't want children to be hurt either. And I don't want people who hurt children to go unpunished. I don't want that crime to be unanswered. But I ask myself, is it okay to think this? Is it okay to say this? I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to forgive. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm supposed to be transformed. What do I do with this? So this is how we may feel when we come to lament psalms and imprecatory psalms. Are they supposed to say that? Is that okay? Isn't complaining wrong? That's what I was taught. That's what the Bible says too, right? Philippians 2.14, right after a description of how selfless Jesus was, it says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And weren't the Israelites in the wilderness punished for complaining? I seem to remember that God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, brought them to be with him, and then they complained and they grumbled. And didn't God eventually send snakes to bite them? And didn't the ground open up and swallow people at certain places? Yeah, that's, that's there. It seems like the simple lesson to be learned from these teachings is don't complain. So is there a difference between complaining in the wilderness and complaining in the Psalms? The answer is yes. And it has to do with where you direct your complaint. One is directed to God, the other one is directed to people or just out there to no one. One involves God and the other one doesn't acknowledge God. One is a prayer and the other is not. It's just cursing. Walt Brueggemann gives this illustration that I know I've shared before, but it's a story that's worth retelling. Picture two siblings playing in the backyard together. One kid hurts the other kid, and the kid goes running in the house, and they've got a scratch on their arm, it's, it's bleeding. They run in crying, and they tell the parent what happened. Oh, you hurt me, I'm bleeding, you need to fix it. And the parent says, okay, and cleans them up, puts a Band-Aid on it, all better, right? But it's not all better. The scratched child demands to know from the parent, what are you gonna do about them? I want you to punish them. I need you to ground them, take away all their toys. I want you to hurt them because they hurt me. And any good parent in this situation will say, why don't you just let me worry about what to do with them? That's what lament does. It directs the matter to God. It acknowledges our real hurts rather than pretending like everything's fine. It allows us to express our honest feelings, which like the child in the backyard are sometimes a little bit exaggerated and overstated. And it also keeps us from taking vengeance into our own hands. It surrenders to God the anger that just might be eating us alive. And the Bible paints a picture of an evil person who's so consumed with doing wrong that it keeps him up at night. Micah chapter 2 and Psalm 36 talk about the person who plots evil in their bed. They're just staring up at the ceiling at night thinking how they're going to stick it to somebody and how satisfying that will be. And the imprecatory Psalms might sound like that person, but believe it or not, they actually keep us from becoming that person. Instead, we bring our honest thoughts of revenge and hate and hurt to God. We lay all our cards out on the table before the Lord. We say, God, I'm so mad. This person is the worst. Honestly, I just want bad things to happen to them. And God, being the loving parent that he is, who also cares about the people that we want to hurt, who hurt us, says, why don't you let me worry about what to do about them? Surprisingly, and somewhat ironically, these harsh laments and curses have the power to heal once we give them over to God. 
In Psalm 69, once the psalmist has revealed his true heart to God, there seems to be this shift from seething revenge to praise and thanksgiving and trust. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and I will glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. This change of attitude doesn't seem to be because God actually did all of the mean things that the psalmist suggested, but instead there's relief when the anger is released, when the reminder of God's trustworthiness returns. And so these harsh psalms that initially make us feel awkward and uncomfortable, they actually help us become ready for anything. They equip us to know what to do if and when we are wronged or hurt by others. They give us a path to healing and releasing our boiling anger. And they invite us into a more honest and meaningful relationship with God. But reading and praying these psalms is more than just a self-help strategy. It's not just 20 laments to a better you and you can too. There's more going on here. Jesus says that the word of God is like a seed that when it's planted in good soil takes root and bears fruit. And in praying the psalms and all their various styles and forms, we are allowing God's word to transform us. God's spirit actually changes the way we respond to disorienting experiences. These psalms aren't just given and preserved to teach us anger management, but I believe that they point us to Jesus and they form and shape us more and more into the kind of people that God made us to be. Think about this. When the psalmist in Psalm 69 is wronged by his enemies, he curses his enemies before God. And we pointed out that's a better response than taking revenge yourself or, or harboring that hatred. But when Jesus is wronged by his enemies, he lays down his life. When the enemies of the psalmist put bitter gall in his food and give him sour wine to drink, he asks God to punish them. But when the enemies of Jesus do the same thing, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I think we need the imprecatory psalms in our lives because we're prone to anger and revenge and reclaiming power. But there comes a point where we trust God so much that we don't really need them anymore. When we can honestly love even our enemies with the same heart that the good parent loves all of their kids, both the ones who are offended and the ones who offend. And that's the heart that Jesus had. And man, that's the heart that I want, but I got to say, I'm not there yet. But I've heard some Christians tell unbelievable stories of forgiveness. Men and women who've genuinely forgiven and restored relationships with people from their past who honestly deserved the rusty knife and overboard to the sharks punishment. Lives transformed, relationships restored. The cursed Psalms alone aren't going to get you to that place. That kind of forgiveness only happens by God's Spirit transforming us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. But the good news for us is that you have received that transforming Spirit when you were baptized. God's Holy Spirit is right where you need Him to be. It's like, you ever realize that you needed to buy a certain kind of battery or a tool for something around the house? And then you go and look in your garage and you say, hey, guess what? I already have one of these. It was there all along. I just, I just didn't realize it. That's the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.11 says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 
And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. That's resurrected life after we die, but it's also living the resurrected life now, before we die. So let's pray the Psalms of Lament and let's take our frustrations and our hurt before our Father in heaven until the day when we won't have to anymore. Let's pray for God to change us and make us more like Jesus. So how can I pray with you? This is a question that I'd like us to ask each other more often. It's very similar to asking someone, hey, how's your week been? Or what have you been up to lately? But it's different in an important way because it also acknowledges our shared belief in the necessity of prayer. It reminds us that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to pray for each other. When it comes to the curse psalms, you may want to be careful about how many people you invite into that kind of prayer. Yeah, you can pray for me. I'm going to curse Jacob this week because I'm tired of that guy. Uh, Maybe don't do that. But let's make sure that we are praying with each other, praying together. And I got to say, there's never not an answer to the question, how can I pray with you? If someone says, how can I pray with you? And the answer is, you know, I'm good. I don't really need prayers, but thanks that we may have greatly underestimated God and the gift of access to him that we have through Jesus. So let me know this week how I can pray with you. I'll tell you, you can pray for me. I'm always up for prayers for wisdom and compassion, for patience and boldness as a church leader and as a teacher. That's that's always appreciated. I got to say, I get frustrated and restless pretty easily, and I don't always manage my anger well. So yeah, thanks for praying for me and praying for this church and our mission to help more people come to know Jesus. We're going to close out now with a song that's, it's a lament psalm, but it ends with this expression of trust that says, still I will praise you, Lord. Still I will praise you. I hope to see you all real soon. Let's sing together.